Do you see self-publishing, especially among comic book creators, becoming the dominating force in this medium? Or do you think that there will always be a place for the big three? I think there will always be a place for the big three. But I think that what you have more of is for the people who resonate and have their own audiences. You know, it's it's a funny thing with comics to where there's so many of them. Hello and welcome comic book friends to another episode of Comic Converse, the podcast where there's always something new and exciting going on between the covers. I'm your host, Jordan Clays, and as many of you no doubt are already aware, baseball season is in full swing and among us, the start of which always brings me back to an all-time favorite film of my childhood, The Sandlot. Now, there are countless reasons to love this film, but for me, it all boils down to what has become, at least in my mind, one of the most memorable and compelling quotes in cinematic history. And it goes a little bit like this. There's heroes and there's legends. Heroes get remembered, but legends never die. And if that's true, then, well, my next guest is bound to live forever. Rodney Barnes is, is much more than just your average comic book creator. He is a literal cultural icon. No doubt you'll recognize his name from his critically acclaimed comic book titles, Philadelphia, Nidaha's Nightmare Blog, as well as Marvel's The Mandalorian, based on the riveting Disney Plus series of the same name. But putting his renowned comic book prowess aside, Rodney is also one of the most sought-after writers and producers on both the big and small screen. Some of his most recent work includes HBO's Emmy-nominated series Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty, Hulu's Wu-Tang and American Saga, and of course, old dogs like myself will no doubt recall his time spent on the epical animated comedy classic, The Boondocks. Rodney is the founder of Zombie Love Studios, a lover of iced tea with just the right amount of sugar in it, and today he joins me to discuss his latest limited comic book series, Monarch. Mr. Barnes, it is a privilege to speak with you today. Thank you, Jordan. That was a great intro. I appreciate it. Hey, like I said, we are just so happy to to have you. Now, um, just for those who who may not be, um, you know, initiated or have had the pleasure to dive into Monarch quite yet, um, basically, Monarch is a, is a fast paced alien invasion story told through the lens of young Trayvon, a boy who is both literally and figuratively of two worlds. Bound by loyalty and love, Trayvon sets out on a journey to save the ones he cares for the most from certain annihilation. And with the world resting solely in his hands, Trayvon is going to be forced to make the difficult choice between that which he was born to be and the young man that he has become. So, Rodney, first and foremost, congratulations. Issue number three has just hit shelves yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. I had the uh, the privilege of the privilege of of picking it up and perusing it already, and I have to say, this is just a story that that keeps on getting better and better. Thank you, thank you very much. I appreciate that. No, no, you're very, very welcome. I think you know, especially with this most recent issue, what I kind of enjoyed the most is the amount of prose that has been consistent throughout the series up until now, and also the fact that this issue really unfolds through the inner monologue of a variety of different principal characters. And I think, again, what I find interesting about and that you don't normally find in, in, a, in a story such as this is that as opposed to chaos and carnage, the two most prevalent themes seem to be hope and love. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Um, I think for me... When you have a lot of these movies, they're pretty much plot driven. Um, 
And that oftentimes sort of diminishes the character stuff. And I'm sort of a character guy. I like to um, try to create connect to trying to create characters that resonate with folk. Um, and hopefully you can feel connected to them in some type of way. Um, that's tough to do sometimes when you're just doing like an action film and you have so many moving parts and you're trying to figure out, um, you know, who's going to die next or, you know, those types of, uh, things. So I like to take my time. I like to, um, typically create, if I have an ensemble, every character matters, you know, not just the main focal point. And that's in, if you look at Philadelphia, um, you know, virtually everything that I've done that's been more than focused on one character. Typically, everybody matters. And if they're on that panel, just the same way that they would be on a television screen, they have a purpose. They serve a purpose. And sometimes the character that you think is just there to be there becomes a really pivotal part of the narrative. No, and I, I, I definitely couldn't agree with you more, especially after um, seeing kind of what's unfolded in this most recent issue, especially from Marley's perspective. That was one of the most enjoyable aspects, uh, certainly as, as far as I was concerned as a reader. Now, I know that you've kind of cited War of the Worlds and Attack the Block as, as two of the biggest inspirations, for lack of a better word, uh, for Monarch. And I guess I just wanted to begin by asking, what is it specifically about those two films among all the kind of, you know, movies that exist within this genre that really kind of drew you to them? War of the Worlds, the first one, I think 1956, um, the first one was the first time I'd seen an alien attack story that sort of had global implications that was like larger than life. And that grabbed me as a kid, you know, and, and movies like the remake and then Independence Day sort of built on that. But that was the first one that grabbed me at a pivotal time. And, you know, Attack the Block was the first time I'd seen that type of those types of implications in a predominantly African-American community. And so I wanted to do a similar thing, but sort of build in an outlier to sort of take the story in a direction that you don't see coming and to make it more personal of a story to where you still have the global implications. You still have, you know, the, the expanse of a big story. But it's still room there to have an intimate story as well. So we sort of start big, go small, and then who knows what the end will be. <laughs> well, we're certainly looking forward to it, to say the least. Now, I also want to make sure that we give due credit to uh, your uh, collaborator and artist on the series, Alex Linz, because the artwork and the visuals are, are truly some of the the best that I've seen in, in recent memory. They're absolutely fantastic and really make the story pop. And if I'm not mistaken, it's my understanding that Alex Linz came to know you first as a fan. He, uh, I read that he had picked up an issue of, of Philadelphia um, and that, you know, the relationship was sort of spawned from there. Um, so I guess, how did it go from him being a fan of yours to being a collaborator with you on this series? Jason Sean Alexander. Um, I have a studio, Zombie Love Studios, and Jason is the art director of the studio. So he basically books talent for all of the books, um, whether they're published through Image or published through, you know, my imprint. Um, and 
you know, variant covers. Philadelphia is kind of known for having a myriad of variant covers. And I think, um, you know, Jason just has a really big Rolodex. And fortunately, Alex was, um, he kind of dug what we do and uh, came along and gave us the services. Excellent. Well, like I said, you guys definitely make quite the pair because it's just been, like I said, just he's he's absolutely fantastic. I I couldn't agree with you more. Um, Now, another thing that I had heard kind of rumblings of is, you know, we're we're three issues in on what I understand to be a six issue limited series. But I also Mm -hmm. heard you mention recently that you've had studio interest as far as developing Monarch into a film. Now, I'm not going to ask you kind of the typical, well, who would you cast in, in a dream scenario here? But I think it would be interesting to know if you could make the selection and if Monarch did in turn get developed either into a movie or let's say a, a streamable series, what song would play at the opening credits and what song would play at the end credits? Oh, man, uh, that's a great question. Didn't see that one coming. Um, probably... Something that felt like California in the beginning. I mean, I think that uh, era of early Death Row or Ice Cube or that kind of stuff um, would probably play in the in the beginning. In the end, mm-hmm. probably something reflective. Okay, I like that. I don't have the song in my head, but something reflective. It's a lot to consider when we get to the end. Yeah, no, I, 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 and I, and again, you probably don't want to give too much away either, which I totally respect, but I, I mean, just based on what you were saying there, I could definitely picture hearing ice cubes. Hello. As, uh, as those opening <laughs> credits began to roll. There you go. <laughs> now, one thing I wanted to also dive into because you mentioned it kind of uh, just briefly when we first got on that, you know, you're, you're a character guy. And I've also heard you speak in interviews before about the importance of eliciting empathy rather than sympathy for your characters. Mm-hmm. And I just was wondering if you could just expound upon the kind of mindset required to create empathy for, you know, a character like Zion, for example, and, and how yeah. do you come to occupy that headspace? Um, uh, my therapist always says, or said to me, and it it stuck with me, um, that everybody's flawed. They're basically two types of people. Both are flawed. They're the people who accept their flaws and sort of double down on them and defend them. And then there are people who accept their flaws, but work on them and try to make them better. And I think you get a character like Zion, who's in a lot of pain. And sometimes that pain overwhelms um, the other sensibilities that might be able to bring out more of his virtues. Um, I don't think, unless there's some defect somewhere along the way, that anyone is just purely evil or bad, per se, in the way sometimes that we portray them in modern media. Um, And so I like to try to give an extra dimension to characters to make them feel like um, it's really their point of view or perspective more so than them just being the antagonist, you know? Um, And I think, you know, when I was a kid and you got those early Batman books, you would have the good Joker was a bad guy. Batman's a good guy, period. But 
over time as we've evolved in the storytelling, you start to see flaws in Batman and you start to see, you know, virtues in some of the guys who are antagonists. And I think that's sort of the evolution of being able to to watch characters grow. And I think an audience that is sort of um, more evolved to a, a more layered experience. And so I try in my books to give, you know, my characters those similar traits as well to where if they are not so much the magical characters, they come from a different place, but the grounded characters, you know, they come from a human experience. I try to give them something in there where you see a light, but that light is sort of, there's an eclipse over that light um, with some, some flaw, something that interrupts their ability to be the best version of themselves. No, oh, I, th- I think that's a, an excellent answer. And, I, I really, it, it reminds me of a, a passage, right? Like literally lifted from issue one, I believe, but you actually write, um, again, this is Trayvon speaking of Zion. Like so many, he was blinded by trauma. His soul wrapped itself around a moment in time and wouldn't let go. Zion never had the luxury of truly existing. I was just, I just, I find that to be such an interest, especially that last part, Zion never had the luxury of truly existing. Could you just, and again, not to make you kind of repeat, but just what exactly do you mean when you say that? Yeah, a lot of people are are born, and I don't mean in a physical sense, in an emotional sense, they're born into a world that is adversarial from the moment they come out of the womb. And when you don't have the opportunity to feel the basic tenets of nurture, of love, of protection, of safety, and all of those things, and you sort of hit the ground already, you know, trying to dodge blows, um, I really think it's tough to not develop anxiety, um, for anger to grow, you know, for you to find those virtues, to, to be able to relax into a sense of who you are and creating an identity that's natural to you versus one that is necessary to survive the circumstances that you're in. And when you think of, you know, things like PTSD and, you know, all of the other trauma centered things that happen, you know, a lot of people feel those things, but don't have an opportunity to actually evolve or heal or get that out. And we're talking about kids now. And, mm-hmm. you know, I worked with kids when I was in D.C. many years ago. I worked with a kid one time and he was a good kid. I could see that he was a good kid. And his parents had passed away. I think they both died um, incarcerated. And his grandmother was trying to raise him and his brother. But she was at an age where she wasn't able to handle them. And so, you know, when I was with him. He was basically on his best behavior because we did fun stuff. We went to games and we talked, we did homework and all of that. And then send him back into an environment and his grandmother would say, he's still doing the same stuff. And, you know, I sort of came to the conclusion that after talking to him, that that's who in his mind he had to be for the world he was in. I took him out of that world and he was with me and he felt like he was safe. And, you know, I wasn't an enemy. He could be comfortable. He could be free. But then when you put him back into the place where he felt like he wasn't safe, another person came up. 
And mm-hmm. so I think oftentimes when you see trauma in certain communities, where you see behavior in certain communities that's problematic, oftentimes it's related directly to a sense of desperation, um, you know, a, a sense of hopelessness, a sense of survival, all of these other things that you just, you know, it's either kill or be killed. And mm-hmm. I try my best when I'm writing about those types of characters or characters in those circumstances to just not be judgmental, you know, to try to put myself in their position and not come from a place of a guy who's in relatively safe set of circumstances versus someone who is fighting for their lives. Yeah. And I mean, I think, and I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, so for, forgive me, but there's even one line where Zion says, um, and again, I apologize if I'm misquoting, but he says something along the lines of, you'll never understand what it's like to be born into a world that truly hates you. And I just yeah. found that to be just a really kind of like, that's, I think that's just a summation on exactly what you're saying. I mean, it's not that this kid is necessarily, like you said, all bad, um, or that anyone is. It's just, we are as good as our circumstances allow us to be at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, I, and I think and, sometimes in today's world, we have a tendency to, to sort of paint with this uneven brush that everybody, whoever makes a mistake or, you know, when somebody is less than their best selves, then they're inherently flawed and, you know, should be cast aside. And I think, um, of course, it's on a spectrum. Of course, you know, if you hurt other people and that type of thing, that's a different conversation. But I think everybody's doing or most people are doing the best that they can. And and I agree with you. And I mean, of course, I'm like, I, I hear what you're saying. You know, things need to be taken into consideration and everything is on a spectrum, as you say. But I think it's if you don't go through life believing that a human being is better than the worst mistake that they've ever done in their entire life, that's I think that's a pretty bleak outlook on life. Mm-hmm. So I, I, mm-hmm. I really agree with, with what you're trying to convey there. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you, and I, I heard you say this recently in an interview where you talked about how in pop culture and, and media, um, there's a tendency to fetishize uh, blackness or, or black culture. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that you were saying that with this story, it was much more important to speak to the culture itself than to focus on the idea of race relations. And I was just wondering if you could kind of, again, just further, because I found that to be such an interesting kind of commentary. And and could you just uh, just expand upon that idea or that notion or, or why that's so important for a story like Monica or any story for that matter? Um, a lot of times, you know, when I get hired for a gig, um, it's and to write about race. It's... Uh, the person that's hiring me already has a preconceived idea of what that is, how that's going to manifest itself in the story. Um, and that's based upon things that they've seen more often than not. Um, and the general idea of the community that we're speaking to and nine times out of 10, that's a very narrow idea. And the nuance that we're talking about there's no room for that. There's only room for behavior, um, sometimes pathological behavior. And you're sort of painting the entire culture with this really broad brush of just this problematic behavior. And I try to, again, work through the prism of a character. 
And I try to give you extra dimensions to that character so that you understand why. Um, there's a show that uh, a writer and producer, uh, Winning Time, and we had a story on uh, Spencer Haywood. He had a drug problem. And it was important in the story not just to see him use drugs and to fall prey to drugs and relapse, but it was important to give you some semblance of backstory as to why you know, he was using drugs in the first place because oftentimes in sports-themed movies and TV shows, when you see characters, when you see the athletes using drugs, they just do it because that's what athletes do. Mm-hmm. And I think oftentimes you have guys who, if we're talking about guys, um, you have guys who use drugs to take away anxiety. Um, you have guys who have a tremendous amount of pressure placed on their shoulders. You have guys who come from limited economic beginnings, and now all of a sudden they have a huge amount of money um, given to, well, not given to them because they're earning it, but you, they have a lot of money in front of them now and a lot of fame and opportunity. And that sounds mm-hmm. great to the average person, but there's a responsibility and there's a pressure that's there. And sometimes the partying is a way to, you know, alleviate some of the pressure and stress that comes with that. And so sometimes when you can add in those extra dimension, dimensions as to why a character is doing a thing, you can be more empathetic to that character. And at least there's some semblance of understanding. If you just place the behavior on the color of the person's skin or the gender or the sexual orientation or whatever it may be, then you you come perilously close to creating a stereotype and saying that's who they all are or that's, um, mm-hmm. oh, of course, that's what they do, you know. Yep. And there was a period of time when I was a younger person, when I would watch television in the 70s and even go back and watch older things, the 60s or whatever, that more often than not, you didn't have a lot of nuance and storytelling that dealt with race or gender, for that matter. And you know, the 70s started to evolve a little bit, but it was still based in um, a very narrow idea of who people were, unless they were talking about things like the civil rights movement or different, you know, movies that were sort of, um, that was their goal, that was their agenda, was to speak directly to um, specificity and nuance. So I try to write more to culture. And when you write to culture, you're just basically saying that, these people in this specific place do things this way. You could have the same group of people, same color, you know, but if they came from another part of the country and maybe were economically in a different level, they may do it completely differently because people from the South may do things differently than the North and the West and whatever. And so if you can add those differences in there, and that's the beautiful thing about being able to write for a team, is that you have guys, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is from Harlem, Magic Johnson is from Lansing, Michigan, um, Spencer Haywood was from the Deep South. That's three different ideas or entry points into America. So you're able to speak to people who look at the world differently, but they're all coming together for a common goal, which is to win and, you know, to be on this team. And so if I can do that with characters in the comics, you know, graphic novels and those things, if I can add those elements in of just how people do things, how they see the world, they'll tell you that you'll see how they behave within the story. 
And you don't need to say, you know, I do this because I'm black, you know, or I do this because of whatever, you know, they just do it because that's an aspect of who they are as a character. And that's how they see the world through their eyes. And hopefully if you identify with that character, you identify with some semblance of authenticity or something that's close to it. You know, I'm not saying I nail it or it's perfect, but the goal and the intention is always to try to get as close to something that feels real. Well, again, I, I think you're humble because I, I I do think you come as as pretty close to nailing it as as one can. Um, last question I wanted to ask about Monarch before we kind of move on to a few other topics here. Let's just say for fun, you know, let's say aliens do exist. Let's say they show up at your doorstep one day and they say, "Show us your work." What's the first book that you're going to show them? Probably Philadelphia number one. I think that was the first book of the books um, that felt like it was my story. When I wrote The Falcon, which was my first book I'd ever uh, written professionally, um, I really know what I was doing. You know, I hadn't developed a voice <laughs> or relationship yet with um, art and, you know, just graphic storytelling. I hadn't. I didn't know what my voice was. I knew what my intention was. Mm -hmm. um, I was still writing from the 80s, you know, and the things that I knew when I was a, a consumer, a huge consumer of comics. Um, I didn't realize what the audience was. You know, thankfully, Twitter will tell you what you're doing right and wrong over time. And, you know, the other books, Quincredible and Lando Double or Nothing, they were all like boot camp for me. It was like a training ground to figure out, all right, what do I do well? What don't I do well? What do I need to improve? Um, those types of things. And so um, by the time I got to Philadelphia, I was like, OK, along with Jason Sean Alexander's incredible art, um, I felt like I knew I was confident enough in the storytelling that I could take a chance and do something that was outside of the box and outside of stuff I'd already done. So I'd say that one. And I think that's an excellent choice. And it, it's, it's a nice little segue because this is exactly what I wanted to talk about. Um, next. Um, when you and I sort of sat down to speak our, our first conversation, I think that was literally very early pandemic. Philadelphia was kind of just recently on the shelves. It was still sort of in its infancy. Um, now it's kind of evolved into this massive hit series. And it kind of reminded me, I was recently watching an old interview with Eddie Murphy where he was talking with Clive Anderson. And this was right around the time that Nutty Professor came out. And Clive asked him, you know, did you have any semblance or any idea that this was going to be a success before it, it hit theaters? And Eddie said something interesting in that you never know when something is going to be a success, but you know when it sucks halfway through making it. Mm -hmm. And I guess I just wanted to ask you, like, because you are someone who has your foot in both worlds, is that a statement that rings true to you? And did you yourself have any idea that Philadelphia would become what it is today? Um, I knew... The first story arc was something that entertained me and Jason, that it felt honest, it felt important, it felt um, all of the, the requisite feelings that you'd like to have when you're intending to write them. I wrote and felt them when I saw the book. The other stuff in volumes two, three, four, and now five, um, didn't see that as much because 
a lot of it was a byproduct of just not wanting to duplicate the thing that I'd done the issue before. It was like, okay, how can I continuously evolve the story and evolve the story and evolve the story? Um, you know, I, I didn't see that part coming. And as far as, you know, the, the acclaim, no, you know, the people who love it, God bless them. Um, they love it. And, you know, we just, I uh, was just before I got on with you, um, there's an Italian version now. I think there's a Spanish, German, Italian, and some others, like four or five different foreign countries that, um, you know, that have translations of Philadelphia. And um, I think I have uh, Switzerland, a uh, store in Switzerland just wrote me a letter. Um, so, no. You know, and I I did not see that part coming, but I did see, I, I do believe that when you write from your heart um, and as honest as kind of a Hemingway type thing, you know, it's like opening your vein and bleeding on the page. You're going to connect with somebody. There's somebody out there that's feeling what you're feeling, um, you know, that's uh, hoping that there's a story like yours that exists that they can connect to that speaks to who they are. And I mean, a lot of even me, uh, one of the reasons why I'm here is because I found stories that spoke to me. I come from a small town with a lot of small town thinking. And um, it's weird when you have the imagination and you have the kind of fanboy pop culture love that I had in a community that was really, and when I say community, my family primarily, that wanted me to be more grounded in my thinking. You know, they wanted me to get a good job with benefits and basically set up for the life that they'd had. And mm -hmm. nothing against that life, but I kept feeling this other thing. There was this pull, like, you know, I, I liken it to dated reference, the movie Close Encounter, and Richard Dreyfus just had to get to Devil's Tower. You know, it's like I felt that there was something inside of me that I wanted to get out, that there was something else I was supposed to be doing. I didn't have a whole lot of people around me who could relate to the experience, but I did find people along the way who helped um, helped me along the path. And so, you know, um, you know, it's a long-winded answer to um, <laughs> no, I didn't. You know, at any of the time, I look in a relatively short amount of time you know, I've got a, a little fan base there and um, the people who sort of gravitate to what I do. And I'm just very thankful and always surprised. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely more than a, a little fan base at, at this point in time. If you're being reproduced and replicated in five different languages all over the world, I think that well, I think that yeah. that's 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 pretty cool. I, I I have to imagine that would be I mean, I, I have a hard enough time reading English. I wouldn't know where to begin if I, you know, was reading my own work in Italian and French and Spanish. That's just got to be the most humbling thing I would, I could, I can only begin to to imagine. It is. Um, now, once again, and I and I don't mean to kind of go back to a or recycle a question here, but there were definitely rumblings that Philadelphia might also be developed into a series. And I was just wondering, is there any more progress or anything else you can tell us on that topic? There's progress. Um, I had written a pilot and uh, was in the process of rewriting a pilot. Um, I think, uh, you know, I have this weird thing that happens when all of my projects sort of kind of converge together and stop me from doing one thing or another. 
we have a, um, I believe we have a Jimmy and I believe we have a James Sangster and, um, I believe we have a director and we got me. And so, you know, those are four pieces to the puzzle. There's still other pieces that we need, mm-hmm. but, you know, I think that's certainly enough to start to, you know, engage with different buyers as far as networks are concerned, trying to set this thing up. So, um, anxious to get into that process, anxious to, um, see what we can do and, um, get this thing, bring this thing to life. Well, that is definitely exciting news to say the least. And again, I don't mean to press you further, but are we talking like, could it be later this year, 2024, or is that, is it too? No, I think the writer strike, um, right now we have to see how that all pans out. Um, right, right. And if it happens and how long it could happen. Um, there's that. Um, I got a lot on my plate right now. Uh, I'm doing a Jack Johnson story at HBO and got a couple of other things in development and who knows of winning time, uh, what happens with winning time season three. Um, so there's a lot there, uh, movies, just different stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, five or six different books, um, for different companies, including my own, um, so there's no real structure to my schedule right now. Right now, it's just a matter of trying to do everything and yep. trying to make things happen. So um, I would love to be able to have it set up this year for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd love to be able to be shooting in the spring or summer of next year and have a show on the fall of next year. Excellent. And I mean, I, I certainly understand. I, I can imagine your schedule must look something like the most insane Venn diagram with all of these circles overlapping and just constantly trying to pinpoint that perfect area where you can just execute each one at the right time. Um, But also, again, speaking about, you know, something that you've been putting out through your own studio here, I definitely want to talk about, um, about zombie love studios. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I think Dracula is certainly a a name that horror fans have become more than familiar with over the last almost century and a half now. Uh, But for those who do still remain uninitiated, what can you tell me about Blackula? Blackula was a movie that my mother took me to when I was a kid. um, And I fell in love with it as a kid. Excuse me. And there were some... It was funny because I'm a huge horror movie buff when as a kid. I love the Hammer films. I love the Universal Monsters. Uh, you know, nothing like Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, you know, riding through the Europe, Eastern European hillside, you know, with wolves following the carriage and to Dracula's castle. All of that stuff I love. Never saw black people. You know, very rarely did black people pop up. And so... Blackula was the first movie that was sort of the experience of seeing black people at the heart of the narrative. Um, the late great William Marshall as uh, Prince Mama Waldy, aka Blackula, at the center of it, you know, doing the best he could, you know, with the material that he was given. Um, uh, director William Crane doing a great job, you know, for those types of low budget movies, like bringing in some good stuff in there. And, you know, as I got older, I saw some of the problematic things that were just a byproduct of black exploitation. Um, and when I say that, I still say it fondly because black exploitation to me was 
a step in a direction, you know, in an ongoing direction for, you know, uh, people of color to be able to have their own um, experiences at the heart center center of a film. And so um, when I saw it as a kid, like I said, it grabbed me. And later on, you know, I started to say, if I ever did a movie like this, what would it be like? You know, if I ever told this story. And over the years, it just rolled around in my head and I kept playing with it, I kept playing with it. And the thing that I loved about the movie the most were the first 10 minutes, you know, that Prince Mamawaldi went to Count Dracula, who was a, um, a dignitary um, in Transylvania to get help with slave trade. And I was like, wow, that's kind of, you know, that's not typically what you see in that type of movie. And so, um, you know, Dracula turns on him, spoiler alert, Dracula turns on him, turns him into a vampire, kills his wife, you know, and that story ends. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. If I was, you know, Prince Mama Waldy, I'd want revenge. You know, even if it was 200 years later, I'd still want revenge. You ruined not only my life and killed my wife, but, you know, uh, the opportunity that I had, I was royalty. I was trying to do something noble. I was trying to stop the slave trade. And so whatever guilt and shame comes with failing in your mission. And there's a thing with my vampires um, that I try to add to vampire lore is they're sort of connected to um, who they were as human beings, like whatever, sort of like in psychology, you know, in, in Freudian psychology, you know, that childhood trauma sort of molds and shapes who you are as an adult. And I sort of have who you were as a human being molds and shape who shapes who you are as a vampire. And I'm certainly not the first to do that. Anne Rice did a great job. And um, to a lesser degree, I think Stephen King in Salem's Lot does the same thing. He focuses more on the community, uh, more so than the individual in the same way that I do. But Anne Rice, certainly because she had the Vampire Chronicles. And so you would have Lestat and Louis over time, mm-hmm. um, you know, growing. And I'm a big fan of the TV show as well. And I wanted to um, sort of have that same thing to where if you had problematic elements to who you were as a person, you have problematic elements to who you are as a vampire. And it's hard to shake those things. And when you're in a coffin, your spirit can move. Even though your body's encased, you can move through the spirit realm. You can you know, see who you were. You can visit you know, different people. You can do things. Um, so to add a spiritual component to the idea of being a vampire, your body becomes almost like a prison. And so, um, you know, adding those elements to, um, Prince Mama Waldy, uh, in the story of Blackula, to me, it was just more of just evolving it to a modern day feel, a modern day sensibility. And, you know, I think deep down hoping that if, uh, a William Marshall were here today, you know, those would be words. This would be a story that he would be proud of and would sort of elevate him to the idea of what um, Bela Lugosi was as Count Dracula, you know, or Frank Langella or any of the guys, Christopher Lee, that played that character. Oh, and again, like I said, it's 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 been it's a, it's been such a great story to read thus far. Now, if I'm not mistaken, do you also have a, at least a concept or ideas for volume two and three as well? Yeah, I do. Um, and I have the rights to that and trying to work out some things right now, business wise to make them come Mm -hmm. to fruition, but look forward to writing two and three as well. Excellent. 
Excellent. Well, like I said, you know, there's a lot to, to cover with you. And, and sometimes it, it almost seems like an exercise in futility to try to, you know, nail down an actual topic of conversation, um, because there's just so we, you know, we could sit and talk for hours. But I wanted to kind of dive into a little bit more of, of kind of your personality, your process and what kind of makes you tick. Um, and I have to say, you're probably one of the most fun people to follow on Instagram because <laughs> it is just, you're doing something every single week. It feels like, um, I mean, most, most recently, you know, I saw you pop up, um, on, on Chris Rock's, uh, latest Netflix comedy special, you know, mm -hmm. you're, I, obviously I know that you, you and Chris are, are friends from, from your time on, on everybody hates Chris and, and, and before, um, but, you know, I, I, first and foremost, like, what was what was that like being in? Because, I mean, that was one of if I mean, for me, probably easy top three of, of his best stand ups that I've seen. I would put that up there uh, with anything that he's done in the past. And because you do have a comedy background, what kind of is your opinion on the role that comedy or, or satire plays on informing or providing a, a, a narrative of our uh, of our worldview or current events? Um, it's funny. Comedy's in a weird place right now. I don't know what comedy is. I don't recognize it in the same way as when I came up. You know, there was a it was sort of this potpourri when I was a kid of uh, different types of comics who did different types of things. Um, you had your Gallagher's at one end of the spectrum, and then you had your Richard Pryor's and George Carlin's and Lenny Bruce's or whoever at the other end of the spectrum. And, you know, now I'm not exactly sure everybody exists and everybody has a voice, but, you know, it's not the same, you know, because of the political climate. Um, it's sort of not as... Um, I want to use the word diverse uh, in a popular in a pop culture sense. You typically don't hear, uh, you know, the same types of like when you had the Carson show, you know, again, I'm dating myself, but I don't have a choice. Um, like Johnny Carson would have. He was this guy who did this late night TV show called The Tonight Show. And you would see different types of comics who did all types of things. And you still see that. But I think to a lesser degree, and a lot of times, the comics that you see on pop, on regular television sort of fall within a really safe realm, you know. And the other guys are like outliers now, the guys who are, you know, politically provocative and, you know, that type of thing. Um, they don't get the same. It's almost like we stay away from those types of voices. And I, unfortunately for me, I grew up in a time where, you know, with shows like Dick Cavett and Phil Donahue and whatever. And I was that kid. I would watch those shows. I think because my grandmother did where you had a lot of political commentary everywhere. You know, it wasn't just interviewing celebrities. You would interview politicians. You would have John Lennon on debating with some political figure. Um, you would have James Baldwin on and, you know, Muhammad Ali would be arguing with Sly Stone and, you just had this this discourse that felt important. It felt like um, everywhere you went, the literature, the movies, the music, 
you know, like all forms of art sort of spoke to what was happening in society. And, you know, even though it was politically charged, you felt like we were trying to figure it out. You know, now it feels polarized. You know, now it feels like they're two extreme poles. And then if you don't take a side, you sort of are the enemy of the other side or whatever. And I try even with like Philadelphia to stay in a place where I'm sort of neutral. You know, the characters themselves have political views, but I don't, or at least you mm-hmm. don't see what my political views are. I don't, you know, try to write a book that's left or right, I just write a mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to go back to your original question, to be able to work with, um, be friends with somebody like Chris Rock, who sort of is of a very specific time and a very specific voice. Um, it's an honor to be able to still be in his company and to be able to be a small part of what he does and um, to be able to be, you know, just part of his world and incredibly proud of him and love the guy. Wow, that's fantastic. Now, a couple of my questions here, you you actually already touched on, but I, I do want to, you know, go back a little bit if we can, because uh, you mentioned Close Encounters. I saw that you had the opportunity to meet Richard Dreyfus in person. And I just wanted to ask. I have a poster that he signed literally six feet over there. He signed a poster for me of the mothership landing. So I have to imagine like when you, and again, I, I get it. You're, you're a pro, you've been doing this for a long time, but I can imagine there still has to be some part of you that when you see sort of, uh, someone that you you idolized for for lack of a better word that that has to be a pretty cool experience i could imagine oh for sure i mean i was uh i did a galaxy con uh richmond a few weeks ago and i was talking to mick foley and uh kevin nash from the wwe um you know just being able to talk to them and william shatner and all of these people that um you know, that made life, you know, life is difficult for everybody, you know, and we, we, we aren't here very, very long. And to be able to be entertained, you know, to be able to bring some fun and some joy to it, it's kind of cool. And you sort of understand it more the older you get, how important it is. As a kid, you sort of take it for granted because you're just a kid. You don't have a reference point to it. Mm-hmm. But then as you get older, you have your own kids and you start to look at your life and see how much that the fun moments were really the comic books and the movies and being able to hang out with your friends and argue and debate this stuff and talk about it. And, you know, to be able to see those people who were part of that is it is cool. You know, it is fun. And I am grateful, incredibly grateful. You know, um, I met I wanted to meet Stephen King when I was uh, and I did in uh, 1997 when I worked on a movie, The Green Mile. And I really only wanted to work on a movie because I wanted to meet Stephen King. It turned out to be a transformative experience for me in a way I never could have imagined. But um, meeting him, being able to touch him be a, a picture of the two of us, like him hugging me and to feel that he was like real, you know, sort of made it like you see a name on a book on a mm-hmm. lot of books and you love them and they make you feel a way. And you almost like, it's hard to believe that a human being sat in a room and 
did this and, you know, you enjoyed it. And to see that person, to meet that person, touch that person, to have a conversation with that person, um, to me made it like, okay, this is real. And if you want to do it, you got to really do it. And, you know, you can do it and you can fail and things may not go your way and you may not be Stephen King and written 70 plus books, you know, or whatever that become that guy. But if you don't try, nothing's going to happen, you know. And so basically what all of those people do for me is they just can. I hate to use words like inspire because it feels small in comparison to what it really is. But they, I'll use motivate. You know, they motivate me to um, to push myself harder, to demand more of myself, both in a quality state and of a quantity state as far as work is concerned, that I can do more. And uh, I, I think I know the picture that, that you're referencing because, like I said, I, I've gone top to bottom on your social media. So, uh, hey, but I post but, it once a year. Yeah, yeah. So every I go back and I post it over and over, and over again. So, yeah. <laughs> Because you were, am I, and now again, IMDb may, or the internet may be lying, but um, on the Green Mile, were you a stand-in for um, oh, for Big John Coffee? Michael Fletcher. Yeah, I was, um, I was working on a movie, Stigmata, and um, I found out that they were looking for big black men to audition for the role of, <laughs> literally it said big black men in the Hollywood Reporter, uh, for the role of John Coffee in um, the Green Mile. And couldn't find a guy. And I was like, okay, if I audition for this, not that I could get it because I didn't see myself as an actor, but maybe I'll meet Stephen King. And so uh, the transportation captain for the movie Stigmata was going on to the Green Mile. And I found this out and I bugged him like every day. He didn't want to see me coming. And, uh, but he did. I'd find him and I'd say, come on, man, you got to take me over there. Yeah, I got to meet somebody. Blah, 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 blah. So, he was taking a 1939 paddy wagon to Warner Brothers to um, they were going to Frank Darabont, the director, um, director of Shawshank Redemption and The Walking Dead and a myriad of other things, was going to check it out to see whether or not it would make a good picture card. So I begged him to let me get in the back of the paddy wagon so that Frank could see in proximity the large black guy in the back of the paddy wagon. And it worked. He let me. And so we go to the uh, we go to the lot. And the problem with the 1939 paddy wagon is it has no air conditioning and no shock <laughs> absorbers. So by the time I get to Warner Brothers, I look like an inmate. I literally I'm sweating and just, you know, and, uh, and I'm still basically living in my car at this point in my life anyway. So it's not like I'm all fancy and whatever. I look basically, you know, kind of like what I look right now. And, um, you know, I can see through the bars, like they had little bars on the side of the window. So I had my hands on the bars because we made it through the gate. And I see Frank Darabont, David Valdez, and I think the the line production, uh, line producer, like waiting for this car to come up. And I'm holding the bars like an inmate. And they don't see me, but I see them. So the car pulls up, to, the truck pulls up to them. And the, I don't wait. I burst out of the back of the, the thing and I scared the hell out of everybody. I think they were trying to call security, but um, they didn't come in time. And 
as they were trying to figure out why this is happening, the transport guy gets out and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. now see, he's the God, you get to see the proximity of the blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so Frank Darabont was so impressed that I wanted to be a part of this and that I wanted to meet Stephen King and him so badly that uh, he hired me on the spot to be the John Coffey stand-in. So um, I got to be there for the auditions. I think it was Bill Duke, Sean McBride, and finally Michael Clark Duncan. Uh, my job was to walk them from the car to the stage and stand in for them to get ready for the shot. And um, I still have the the coveralls, the John Coffey coveralls and T-shirt and all of that. And um it was just a fantastic experience. Um, I remember walking Michael Clark Duncan from his car and he was how badly he wanted the role. And he's like, I'm working for the electric company right now. I really need this part. You think I got a shot? And I'm like, yeah, and I, I don't know anything. Like literally I know nothing, but I'm trying to encourage him. <laughs> and um, he comes in and, you know, he nails it from the beginning. And um it went on to be a great six-month experience um, every day being on the Green Mile with him and Tom Hanks and a bunch of great actors. And um, eventually I started to um, double him, like in certain scenes, um, off-camera work. I would do some of that. And um, it was just a fantastic experience. And um, it was very, very, very important Um that that whole job was an important bridge for me to go from basically hustling to stay afloat in California to being a creative in California. That's such an incredible story. Such an incredible movie too, honestly. Um, yeah. Maybe one of the most heart-wrenching uh, films and one that always reduces me to tears every time I happen to see it playing. Um, Going back and kind of speaking about beginnings and and kind of you know where where you've come from, I was wondering if you could tell me the the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the names Pip Moyer and Zastro Sims. Um, boy, you did your research. Um, <laughs> a very specific time, certainly with Pip Moyer of um, his son uh, Bumper Moyer. Who's um, who's a friend of mine? I used to come over to the house and we would trade comic books together. He has a um, comic shop in Maryland, Twilight Zone, and um, good friend. Um, I think of a very specific time. You know, I think of the seventies. Um, the seventies was sort of a very idealistic time for me because it was progressive more so than the sixties. Not just because of the the 60s to the 70s, but a lot of what was happening in the world. Um, and my mother would have a lot of um, books laying around, um, a lot of like, you know, Soul on Ice and a lot of the James Baldwin books and just things that would just be sitting around and I would pick them up and read them. And I just felt like the world was changing and changing in a really cool time. Um, of, you know, I was single digits in the 70s. So being able to be a fan of like Muhammad Ali and Evil Knievel and Six Million Dollar Man and Cole Shack, the Night Stalker and all of that stuff sort of um, framed and even comic books. I had this conversation with Patton Oswald not too long ago. We were talking about how comic books were sort of disposable entertainment. 
Like, you know, the reason they cost 12 cents or a quarter or whatever was because nobody thought you'd keep them. You know, they were sort of um, extensions of the newspaper. You know, they were just, they were funny books, as my grandfather would say. They weren't something that you were, you know, going to pay 1200 bucks for some 40 years later um, <laughs> or more. Um, and when I think of like what Pippin's Astro were to my hometown of Annapolis, Maryland, they sort of represented a sense of um, community. Um, Sastro would put together um, these little bus rides. Like he took me to my first circus, I think. It was, um, you know, he would take all the kids in the neighborhood. He'd find a bus and we would be sitting as far up on the roof of the Civic Center as you could. But he took us to basketball games and he took us to movies and um, you really just felt a sense of community um, that I I don't know if it exists in the same way that it did back then. But, you know, Pip Moyer was certainly instrumental for a lot of people of color working in the city of Annapolis um, and gaining some semblance of a foothold in a city that was at one time a slave port. And um, and again, in a transformative time, you're coming out of the 60s, you're not that far removed from the civil rights movement and you're moving into like the Pan-African movement and more of an aggressive, rebellious sensibility. But and I think a lot of that was born from the assassination of Dr. King and Malcolm X but uh, and the Kennedys. But, um, yeah, I think both of those guys were certainly instrumental figures in my childhood, you know, and, and guys that I look to fondly and remember fondly. I, uh, I happened to come across their, uh, their, their documentary. documentary. I was, uh, yeah, I was, I was watching that on, and it seems like they had quite a, quite a very influential friendship to, to put it lightly. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I, I understood Pip was kind of the the young hotshot basketball star and Zastro was a football player. And, you know, they kind of formed this unlikely bond that ended up influencing an entire generation. So I, yeah. I definitely wanted to make sure to, to ask you about that. Cause no, one I, thing that I never, never got that question before, but go ahead. Well, no. And I, and again, that's, that's, that's what we aim for. I, I think the most interesting thing or what I find most compelling about you is I always feel a little bit smarter after I I hear you speak or after I uh, after I, I I read something that that you've written. Um, Thank you. So I, I think it's imp- you're very welcome. And again, I think it's important and it, it helps it helps me gain a better understanding and maybe feel just that much closer to you to know kind of maybe things that other people might not. So I, I think that that is a, a, a very cool thing to say the least now hey no not not we i appreciate you now i know we've been speaking for a while i really you know like i said i i could continue to sit here and ask you questions all night long um but one thing i did want to to ask before we wrap up and before we go um you've kind of going back to philadelphia here you've been expanding uh the universe a little bit uh through substack um and and are, and are publishing a few different titles uh, through that, and I find Substack interesting because I I feel like the pandemic 
affected a lot of things. It affected the way that we digest movies and, and TV shows, but it also affected the way that we consume comic books. And out of necessity, a lot of creators at that time were turning to things like Kickstarter, Indiegogo, you know, more, more recently Substack. But surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, instead of going away, it seems to only be getting more and more popular. And I guess I wanted to gain a little bit of insight from your perspective. Do you see self-publishing, especially among comic book creators, becoming the dominating force in this medium? Or do you think that there will always be a place for the big three? I think there will always be a place for the big three. But I think that what you have more of is for the people who resonate and have their own audiences. You know, it's it's a funny thing with comics to where there's so many of them. Like when I walk sometimes into a comic shop, if I don't have an hour to sit there and look at all the covers that are all fantastic art, you know, and flip through them and, you know, great stories and all of that, you know, again, you go back to my childhood, there might be 20 titles from Marvel, 20 titles from DC, and, you know, they might interchange from time to time and maybe team up with each other. Um, and then it started to grow and grow and grow and grow. And you have so many publishers now and so many things fighting for um, folks' attention and eyes. Um, but then every once in a while you find creatives who, for some reason, uh, folks tend to follow their work. And I was that kind of kid. You know, I was a huge Alan Moore fan and Neil Gaiman fan. And, you know, there were people, Neil Adams fan, you know, and when they did things outside of, you know, the popular stuff, DC Marvel stuff, I'd follow them wherever they went um, because I love what they do. And so just the business of comics, because it doesn't pay a whole lot, you know, unless you're really a businessman and, and wise and your book is a huge hit. Um, you have to be more business minded and more savvy. Um, you can't just approach it with romance and sentiment. Um, there's always that there, but you have to look at it for what it is. You have to look at it as a business and you have to be able to, the more you can connect with your audience, um, and give them what they want, the better, you know, your opportunity to stay in business is. And so things like Substack give creatives the opportunity to be able to have their own voice, connect with their audience, develop a fan base, um, and really keep their finger on the pulse of what it is that they do that people like and hopefully be able to get people to um, get to know them a little bit better beyond the boundaries sometimes that exist in working for major publishers. So, you know, I try again, I have but so many um, hours in the day. I try to keep new material coming there first and I try to keep uh, my newsletter coming out and making sure folks know what I'm doing next and keep up to date with everything. Um, it's tough, though. You know, it's tough balancing. It's a balancing act between a publishing company, Mandalorian. I may be doing another Star Wars book. Um, I may be doing a book for DC. Um, you know, so much stuff. I do three books for Image. Um, and then I got the Zombie Love book. So it's like, is so many different things along with three, four TV shows, a few movies, and just trying to be a human being every single day is, um, is taxing. And so, you know, I try to create a balance and I try to make people feel like 
when they subscribe that they're getting their money's worth and they're getting whatever it is that they came to me to get like but in an honest and open way and something that feels like um they're not being shortchanged well i can say for for those fans and you know like myself i i think we can confidently say that we'll uh we'll follow you to the ends of the earth and anywhere in between whether that be comics movies or tv and the revolution starts in two weeks. I expect all of you to be ready. But hey, hey, count us. Hey, clear and attentive. That's where. Yeah. That's. Uh, but honestly, Rodney, it's been an absolute pleasure and and privilege to be able to to pick your brain to to gain some insight from you. And just all, all I can really say is is thank you. And you know, I know that you were saying it's kind of you wish you could say more and and I really do wish that I could as well, but, but you inspire me. And, and for those like myself, I think you inspire us all. So thank you so much and just keep on doing what you're doing. No choice at this point, but thank you. <laughs> and everyone, thank you for listening. That wraps up this most recent episode of Comic Converse. Make sure to head to your local comic book store, pick up Monarch, get caught up with Philadelphia, need a Hawes Nightmare blog, The Mandalorian. I could go on forever. Rodney Barnes, thank you. You're very welcome.